This episode is brought to you by artisanal mushroom metaphors. Did you know that many of the most common aspects of your life that you've come to take for granted were originally just a metaphor for a mushroom? The forbidden fruit of Eden, Santa Claus, Christianity, the IRS, it's really a toadstool, the Motel 6s, the common stinkhorn, of course, the Spanish-American War, yep, a mushroom. Perhaps you're asking yourself who would build an entire holiday like Columbus Day, or a religion like the Star Wars franchise, as an indirect way of appreciating magic mushrooms. My friend, you've clearly never met a dedicated shroomer. An underrecognized fact of history is that fully one half of the Rereading Wolf podcast team was always just an allusion to the humble hallucinatory affecting mushroom. And artisanal mushroom metaphors have been handcrafting historical and mythical people and entities entirely from mushroomy materials ever since they created the Freemasonry movement from a plate of shiitake. And today their craftsmen stand ready to take your order to construct a personal life cornerstone, whole cloth, from God's miracle clay. At their website you can customize an absent father, a powerful but indulgent career mentor, or a shadowy revolutionary political party. And in a few weeks, your mushroom proxy will arrive at your door in deceptively innocent packaging. So thank you, Artisanal Mushroom Metaphors, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, I was a little skeptical that anyone was going to enjoy Chapter 33, Five Legs, as much as we did. But my doubt was totally unjustified. People can actually handle odd numbers of limbs. So that's good. <laughs> that really wasn't the part that was freaking me out. But uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> Let's start with corrections so people won't think we're hiding anything. Saying it's a mistake. It's a mistake. On Reddit, Cody Martin says, I wasn't going to make this comment because I didn't want to be correcting James on Minutia two episodes in a row, but he once again mentioned his theory that Talos is in possession of Vodalus's sword cane. <laughs> I, I guess Cody feels like I'm gratuitously provoking him. Well, it's not like I've never been accused of that before. But bring on the corrections, Cody. This thing doesn't work without you guys. So thanks for this, and don't stop. We hope we inspire a, hey, wait a minute moment every episode, because we love it when we have that feeling. Anyway, I like using the correction music, so thanks. <laughs> but back to Cody's correction. Cody doesn't believe my association of Talos's cane to Vodalus is well-grounded or even likely. He says, Talos is described by Severian as a small man, yet he's supposed to be carrying around an exultant's cane, a cane of suitable size for it. Vodalus would be around chest or shoulder height for Talos. I see Cody's point, but you know, there are two canes 
in the entire book, and they're both sword canes. And it's not like Talos's cane has a known heritage. He found it left behind after a show. It would be almost lazy for it not to be Vodalus's cane. Like, no canes do not have swords in them in Severian's world. <laughs> they all have a sword in them. Also, we don't really know that Vodalus was using his cane for walking around. We don't know that it was made for an exalted rather than coming into his possession as coincidentally as Talos got his. And actually, we get no mention of the dimensions of Vodalus's cane. Maybe, you know, Talos carries it as a staff. Could be. And it's also just something that's so unique that to not have it be connected somewhere is just weird. Unless then Wolf is trying to specifically make us realize that, okay, you think these are the same, but they're not. And but yeah, but but I'm like, well, but why? What would the what would the point be? Unless yeah. we're just supposed to think we're in a world where there, you know, all kinds of crazy synchronicities happening that we just don't mm-hmm. understand. Yeah. So that's one where I guess you could argue about how Occam's razor actually works, which is simpler. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but but I Occam, the thing about these books is that Occam's razor always looks like it works for your side and not for any theories right. that you find odd right so I, I i don't want to rely on that but come on there's there's two sword canes talos just found it i don't know but the point is well taken that yes if yeah. we are thinking of size yeah talos is definitely smaller it could be yeah if you have doubts it's not like you don't have reason to have doubts but the big question for me is why does wolf have talos carrying this cane maybe Voldalus's cane if not but definitely a sword cane, just like Vodalus carried. What is the connection between these two? I, I don't know. I'd feel better about my assessment, which I do think is true. But I'd feel better about it if I could show that it was narratively or symbolically useful. And that I don't know. On Facebook, the inestimable Callum McPherson said, It's a great little chapter that I really enjoy, and your podcast did it much justice. Oh, thanks, Callum. He says, one of the things I love about this chapter is Severian, the author, musing on the parallels between being a torturer and an author. I think reading the paragraph that finishes, quote, I know little of literary style, but I've learned as I progressed and find this art not so much different from my old one, as might be thought, was the first time I picked up on my own that Wolf is, in fact, a bit of a joker and playing that joke at the reader's expense. It struck me that Wolf was coming right out and telling us that he, as an author, is not so dissimilar to a torturer and that we were the clients in a literary Madachin Tower under excruciation by all the tricks that he has woven for us. I wonder if anyone else thought this too. (laughs) Callum, I assure you, I think of that all the time. Yeah, (laughs) I also think it's probably, honestly, like one thing we do when we're doing all this rereading, rereading rereading stuff, I think sometimes we miss those sort of things that are a little bit more like obvious jokes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so probably that was probably the main reason he put that in there and we were taking it in some different ways. But um, so yeah, I think you're definitely right. Yes, Def. Also on Facebook, Gary Owens regarding my issues with Severian not being able to work out when Master Malrubius died, linked that to his declaration that his bones must be dust by now, even though it's been only 10 or 15 years. And he said, quote, whenever I hear dust in the Book of New Sun, I think of Eidolons. So Master Malrubius has been an Eidolon for a long time 
as opposed to his body decomposing to dust. He has obviously been keeping an eye on Severian a long time, too. Hmm. Well, perhaps, yeah. Certainly referring to Malrubius as being dust by now could be an authorial reference to him being an Eidolon. Very likely. He goes on to speculate on where the form of government, the Asians, am I saying that right? All right, that's not right. What form of government the Askeans fit on this spectrum? Their language has been turned into the abstraction of correct thought in order to best serve and protect the populace. The loyalty of the populace is maybe to the group of 17, but isn't that true of their allegiance to correct thought? Well, you know what they say about great minds and parallel thinking. On Reddit, Cody Martin said, this episode made me think about how the government we encounter in the text relate to the seven principles that Severian lists. The autarky falls under the second principle since the line of succession is itself important to the ultimate purpose of bringing a new son. The definition of the seventh principle is a bit confusing, but I believe it's describing the Askean government. The abstraction that they are attached to is correct thought, and the group of 17 is the body of electors with the populace of Askea giving rise to them. Appian says this about the Askeans, all have been tried and all have failed. Goods in common, the rule of the people, everything. You wish for progress, the Askeans have it. This hints that their government is intended to be the most advanced system and thus falls into the seventh category. Well, I do like that. Yeah, definitely seems possible. I... I think it's, it gets back to that idea of whether you want to read that section as actually about politics or actually about something else, like about, yeah. about theology. And that's, I think I tend toward it being not so much a, a real lesson in sort of actual real world politics, but I definitely see the connection there to yeah. the crazy Northern people. Yeah. <laughs> On Facebook, Timothy Hodler was also considering the purpose of Mount Rubius's little civics lesson, which I agree is possibly as important or more than which level of government is the highest. He figures that the point of the lesson is, quote, what is the correct relationship we should have with God? Then he proceeds with some interesting thinking out loud about what the levels of government reveal about that. And on Reddit again, Bowen Kaj who is willing to go along with my first Severian Malrubius angle, Craig, to see where it goes. He says, Malrubius's question about Severian's relationship to the divine entity and Severian's response that he supposes he has a personal attachment couches the spiritual in a political framework. Mm -hmm. Severian experiences a revelation of the sanctity of the physical world. Severian would someday actually get on a spaceship piloted by an angel and go to a whole other planet which is also another spiritual plane of existence and will become a real messianic figure from his own past. The spiritual will be wholly intertwined with the physical for the remainder of Severian's life, and Ra Rubius for Severian is trying to get that idea into his head in order to, I don't know, smooth the transition, acclimate him to the grounded miraculous, show him that the divine and the secular are the same thing, and that you just go along with the plan. Yeah, I like that because it is connecting the two. And yeah, I mean, just to go back to what I just said about how you have to choose whether it's political or <laughs> theological, <laughs> maybe it's both. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. that's yeah, 
good point too there. Um, tracing out the details, I still find to be still pretty difficult to know exactly, yeah, exactly what the sort of hierarchy of different levels is supposed to be and whether it actually tracks onto both political and theological types of faith or humility or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but, but I like the idea too, that they're actually, he's, he's setting them up to start thinking in those terms that I can buy. Well, I have a lot more time at the end of the year. Perhaps I can finish detailing how it is inevitable that this is true. We'll see. Let's go back to chapter 32, the play. We speculate on why is Talos making this play for Severian to take a role in. And on Reddit, Michael Andre Drisi says, I think it is all for Baldanders because it is about the new sun and all. It is like a cocaine-infused tonic to stimulate his new sun-hating patient into fury. Nay, volcanic action. It is a goad, like beating him into wakefulness in the morn. Uh, Michael also says that he likes the outtake. So I guess he's encouraging you to come to the recording as Mr. Grumpy Puss more often. Right? <laughs> yeah, I still don't know, though, if it's if it can actually be about Bald Anders. Um, like <laughs> if it can actually be for him. I suppose so, but Bald Anders seems so caught up in his own world so much of the time that I don't even know if he's paying attention to anything other than that he has to do in that minute. I don't know. <laughs> he must He must scream at the end. That's all he can keep track and of it, so. it is true that for them to get their money they do have to scare people out of their yeah. wits to do it so yeah could be in the youtube comments for this episode colin kozlovich is considering the first severian theory and connection to marubius severian notes that marubius at the moment he thrust away the claw has been dust for long years he's interested in its use by asapego that if you write a name in the dust and then rewrite it in dust. Both are the real name. He says, if, I think it fits this chapter well for that wordplay alone, even if Marobius's bones are likely not actually dust by then. He also imagines that First Severian's proximity to our Severian could have resulted in him sickening, and he knew it would happen, and it only got worse as Severian got older. If Severian came into contact with his body after he died, Marobius did turn to dust as Severian is the stronger one in this timeline. And finally, he also imagines a model for the first Severian that's akin to the mechanics of the New Game Plus feature in Witcher <laughs> 3 video game, where you finish and then you get to restart the game with all your experience and possessions. And Dark Souls, we should say, for those Dark oh. Souls fans out there. Yeah. yeah, not bad. Also, he's reading the Book of the Long Sun with the bonus episodes in mind where Mark and I discuss those books. And therefore, he's viewing the dream sequences in that book and this one with more import. He says, it makes rereading the chapters like this one in the New Sun all the more exciting. Also, let's see, we got a uh, email from Internaut. He says, or she says, who knows? I disagree with a thing or maybe a feeling you had about something. I, I know you can handle it. <laughs> In the episode for chapter 32, the play, there's a reference to Gene Wolfe's three ways of seeing or whatever. There is a discussion between Dorcas and Severian on interpreting reality. And the idea that the cow is not comprehensible to Dorcas, the least understandable of the versions, this should not be dismissed as wishy-washy mystical BS. Did we treat it that way? I hope not. It looks like that, but it isn't that. 
so the vehemence. <laughs> there are two issues. The first is that almost any of world knowledge is not actually legible to the formal analytical part of the human mind. This is not an abstract new age BS idea. These are the suite of ideas from the philosopher Polyani and computer scientist Moravec, the paradoxes that still confound the creation of AI. What we know is not known, simple but profound. All the time, humans and animals are performing activities almost magical to the modern street of artificers, like walking in bipedal motion or opening a doorknob, which robots still can't do in 2020, potentially won't in 2200. Yeah, you heard me. Most anciently, and this is the source probably known to Gene Wolfe, that the cow is not truly understandable. For example, how to instantiate a copy from scratch. You can't do it, so you don't actually understand it. You only have a descriptor for the cow. That's an example of what Earl from the Schwepp podcast, that I'm sure Gene would have loved, would call an apophatic knowledge. Apophatic understandings in the fully scientific sense are more advanced than first principles logic, not less so. The cow is incredibly mysterious. The transcendental meaning is mundane. Feel like giving Gene a high five. <laughs> so, yeah. So, by the way, I got excited about this one because the Schwepp podcast is the, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast hosted by a guy named Earl Fontanelle. Uh, but, but it's this amazing podcast all about a deep dive into the history of yeah, Western esoteric thought and esoteric just means anything that's supposed to be seen as secret or, uh, you know, sort of hidden or really hard to understand. So it's stuff like alchemy or astrology or particularly like old ancient mystery cults. Um, but he's very serious about it, like finding out what can we say? And he has scholars on all the time. And, and it's really more like a history of philosophy podcast. So really awesome thing. But yeah, so the point here is that yeah, the things in there that you think about, like physical causes of things, that certain ways of looking at things would say that actually those are the most complicated and highest thing to do. Whereas principles like God is one, like that's sort of a basic logical kind of thing that is very abstract, but it's also easier to sort of deal with that than. Yeah, I mean, then, then sort of common things that we might take for granted and not even really think about. So the idea, right, that the computer could actually win at Jeopardy, but not be able to figure out how to click the button to answer the, <laughs> the questions, right, in real life. Like that's that's kind of an example of how the things that seem simple might actually be much more complicated. Yeah, the other thing, apophatic knowledge also means um, negative theology is what apophatic stuff usually is talking about the idea that we can describe something, but we can't really say what it is or that we can put a point at something, but we can't really explain it very well. So the idea would be that, you know, like in negative theology, they're going to talk about how if God truly is perfect, then nothing we say about him, even trying to say God is perfect is actually true. Because any quality that we could imagine, even our notion of perfection, is so finite and imperfect compared to what God actually is that we could never say anything about him. So you, it's sort of like you can't even say God is good because God is so much better than any notion of good that we could actually have that calling him good is actually false. Um, so the negative theology is this idea that things are always, if you're really going to do theology, you're talking about things that are so far divorced from our sense of 
anything that all we can do is kind of gesture at it. We can't really know it. And so if you take that kind of approach to all the different levels, it's a little bit easier to understand God maybe than it is to understand just how I walk from this side of the room to the other, because there's so much more going on if I'm trying to refer to, to just casually everything that's involved in me walking from here to there than I am just to a kind of negation of an idea, which is what maybe God would be. So therefore the, the common, the, the everyday is actually way more complicated and difficult than theology. And so yeah. that's at least the idea that would be there. But. Well, I'm very aware of this situation because you know it's my job to take what engineers have built and describe it in a way that other people can use it, other people can maintain it yeah. and understand what it's doing. And that is actually really, really hard. Mm-hmm. It's so much so that they actually hire someone else to do it besides those engineers. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, the, actually describing what something is as opposed to what it means, I can easily say the purpose of a piece of equipment or software, but actually describing how it pulls it off is very hard. Yeah. So the question then is whether Wolf is, is that what he's actually saying there? And I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I like the idea. I like that that's sort of gesturing towards what he would say, maybe that is what he means by, by saying that actually the, the physical causes, they can seem mundane, but actually they're, they're sort of vastly more complex than we could imagine. Maybe so. Maybe that is what he's getting at. Well, it's definitely true in this instance, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know then if he would buy the idea that therefore the truest things are simpler to understand. Uh, I don't know if it flips or if just every level is really complicated. <laughs> and I don't know. Wolf, Wolf seems a little more along the idea like, yeah, everything is way more complicated than you thought. Yeah, but I don't, know. Yeah. I don't know. And by the way, I did tell him on there that I the, I like that podcast a lot and have emailed the host back and forth a couple of times. Um, and if you're thinking about esoteric being something where you're writing something that is hidden or hard to understand or discussed sort of sideways or through a puzzle, Wolf would be perfect for that kind of thing. And, and Earl had never actually heard of Wolf and I got him. He, he told me in the last, last time he emailed that he had bought a copy of Shadow and Claw. So I was thrilled about that. So who knows (laughs) if you're a fan of the Schwepp, then maybe one day Wolf will end up on that podcast. You never know. (laughs) Anyway, Craig, it's all well and good, but now it's the morning after the play and we're going to have breakfast. Yeah, literally Mm -hmm. that's all that's going to happen in this chapter. Breakfast, pass out the money. We have breakfast a lot in this book, don't we? (laughs) Wolf likes breakfast. But, you know, Craig, we're going to have nothing to talk about today. (laughs) Breakfast is the simplest thing. We'll have to discuss it apophatically. (laughs) Chapter 34, morning. All right, let's recap. Just after noon, 13 days after the feast of Holy St. Catherine, That's when Severian left the tower. On the morning of the 14th day, he had breakfast with Talos and Baldanders and met Agio. By the time he wakes up in the Lazarus, on the 15th day, he has resurrected Dorcas, had an unknowing brush with his father, and fought a duel with flowers, with Agalus. That night, he encounters Hathor, and consummates his relationship with Dorcas. At noon of the 16th day, 
he executed Agalus, and on that night, he saw the vision of the rising Pellerines Cathedral and took an improv role in Talus's play. And then that night, he dreamed of Malrubius and Triscoli. So now, it's the morning of the 17th day after Severian's elevation to journeyman torturer. All right? And props to you for keeping with Agalus, which <laughs> I cannot do. So. Well, I have made the transition. It's just <laughs> the right thing to do. <laughs> Severian wakes up before everyone else, except Talos. So if Talos needs to sleep, he needs less than most. Severian tells him he had a strange dream. He looks around because he's not sure it was a dream and wonders if the people in it are still around. Whatever Talos makes of it, he says in a way that you would reassure a child that they are the only two around. Severian tells him that he dreamed his dog laid beside him and that he could feel the warmth of his body when he woke up. And Talos points out that, you know, he was sleeping by the fire. He says he has seen no dog uh, and nor Malrubius after Severian described him. And Talos says, I could not have failed to see him. Severian says, well, what if you were sleeping? And Batalus claims to have only slept earlier in the night and has been awake for the last three hours or so. Severian offers to keep watch on the property so Talos can get some sleep. Really, he's afraid to go back to sleep. Talos kind of hesitates at the offer, and it seems to me he knows that he doesn't need to sleep, but recognizes the need to pretend to, right? Uh, much like I think, you know, he pretended to drink his tea at breakfast three days ago. But, you know, some people think it's not all an act and he has to eat something. Yeah. So it seems more like he's kind of taking a second there to kind of be like, oh, you know what? It's still in our interest for him to think I'm a human. So let's just do this. Yeah. So he lays down on Severian's blanket, now wet with dew. Severian turns the chair Talos was sitting in last night, so it's facing the fire instead of away from it. And he thinks about his dream. And then the claw, and he's glad when Jolenta wakes up so he doesn't have to be alone with his <laughs> thoughts. And Jolenta goes to the copse that Severian and Dorcas passed on the way to the play to look for a stream to bathe in. When he describes seeing her for the first time, as far as he knew, he called her the most beautiful woman in the world. Here... He describes her stretching her lush limbs against the scarlet shot sky. But, you know, even now his comments on her beauty are qualified. And this, I doubt this is intentional, but just when you get that sort of over the top alliteration there with like the lush limbs and scarlet shot sky, it sort of seems kind of like <laughs> the way that she is beautiful, but cartoonishly beautiful almost is how I often think like the, the language kind of fits there. So, you mm -hmm. know, it's like, yeah. this is poetry. Just like with her, it'd be like, this is lusty woman. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it works, but it's also kind of over the top. Yeah. Severian starts rating the women he's known in the last three weeks. Severian says Jalinta's looks distracted his thoughts, which was a relief. He says, I found myself glancing from her retreating figure to Dorcas's prone one. Jalinta's beauty was perfect. No other woman I have ever seen could approach it. Thecla's towering stateliness made her seem coarse and mannish in comparison. Dorcas's blonde delicacy, as meager and childlike as Valeria, the forgotten girl I had encountered in the atrium of time. Yeah. 
Got to mention that. Okay. <laughs> let's let's save that Valeria reference for later, but we've really got to talk about that <laughs> because this is the first time he's mentioned her since he saw her, right? Yep. She truly has been forgotten. Yeah. Severian says Jalinta's voice was husky and slightly breathless. One listened to it as if to music. And this is a change, I guess, from the time he first met her serving breakfast. I I don't know if it's an artificial change that Talos made to her or part of the hypnotic suggestion. Yeah, I would guess it's probably some of both is what I'm thinking, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, yet I was not attracted to Jalinta as I had been to Asia. I did not love her as I had loved Thecla. I did not desire the intimacy of thought and feeling that had sprung up between Dorcas and me or think it was possible Like every man who ever saw her, I desired her, but I wanted her as one wants a woman in a painting. Aha. That is like porn, right? Yeah. Yeah. An article. Ah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yep. It's kind of both. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing there too, is you contrast it with how he talked before about if you lust after a woman, you'll probably come to love her. And if you love a woman, you'll desire her kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas he's saying, and Jolenta doesn't quite fit that pattern, that something else is going on with her, that even though, yeah, she's beautiful, there's really no chance that you feel connected to her. You, you, yeah, it's more like an empty reaction that, yeah, your, your body's reacting, but your essence, right. your soul is not really reacting. To and yeah. Severian's world doesn't have, you know, slick magazines at the convenience store. So right. yeah. a painting would be the equivalent of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great, great yeah. analogy for that. Yeah. You don't typically imagine yourself sharing a life with the woman or man in a centerfold. You don't imagine talking to her or admiring the ineffable beauty in her character. And I'll note that you know, Severian does not even classify his desire for Asia like yeah. that. I would add that there is one character who might, Heather, that if he's fallen in love with his sex doll, you know, whether or not that's Asia, the way that he's so mm. in love with that yeah. sex doll almost suggests that there's something broken about him in some way or another. That, you know, maybe if we're, if we're putting the logic of these things together. And Jonas is going to be. Yeah. yeah and, Jonas, and Jonas. Really taken with Jalenta for, yeah. right, we can talk about why when we get there, but. Yeah. So that does bring up one other thing just to ask and thinking of weird time things. Is there any chance that Heather is Jonas? That if the, the sex doll that he's lost, who has taken her is Jalenta and now he's come back in, in, in the past and he's, he's broken because of so much extreme changes, so many extreme changes that he's gone through. What color are Jalenta's eyes? Uh, that's a good question. Um, oh. I don't know, but that's something I'd never thought about before. But um, hmm. I don't know. I'll have to, that's that's something for later, maybe next chapter, yeah. which is called Heather. But anyway, <laughs> I'll, have to, yeah. I'll have to write that down as possible. Green. Her eyes are green, boys. Just another beautiful, elegant theory shot down by a crude, ugly fact. Uh, Well, Severian goes on describing her. He says, even while I admired her, that is Jalinta, I could not help but notice, as I had on the stage the night before, how clumsy she walked, she who appeared so graceful in repose. 
Those round thighs chafed one another. That admirable flesh weighed her until she carried her voluptuousness as another woman would have carried a child in her belly. When she returned from the copse with drops of clear water shining on her lashes and her face as pure and perfect as the curve of the rainbow, I felt still almost as though I were alone. Wow. Once again, she's an object. She's an object of desire and she's a thing. She's a picture in a magazine. Yeah. And it goes back to that thing about her voice that at first it sounds very good that her voice is like music, but then you realize that what he means is I listen to it and it's pleasant, but I'm not paying attention to what she's saying. Right. I have, what the lyrics are, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And also she's impractical for real life. She can stand there and look desirable, but you can't take her out. So she only belongs, she belongs in the centerfold only. Yeah. I always think of her too as, and I don't know if I've mentioned it here or not, but is uh, Jessica Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That sort of oh, over yeah, the yeah, top, sure. extreme, you know, curvy where is if <laughs> Jessica Rabbit was at all mm -hmm. real, yeah, she'd just be in pain the whole time. But you see her and it's sort of this like, oh yeah, I know I'm supposed to be reacting in a certain way. Right. But, yeah. And like you said, he's listening to her voice as if to music. He's paying attention to the outward form of her voice rather than its internal meaning. And so he suddenly realizes when she's talking to him that she's offering him some fruit. He doesn't record what she said before he started paying attention, suggesting he doesn't know at all what she said. And that's a slight hint about his memory, right? Mm -hmm. Does it, He has to be paying attention to something in order to register it. Wasn't conscious of it at the time. How can he remember it later? Or there's another way we could do it, that it's the hypnotic suggestions that are working on him and actually messing with his memory. Mm. I don't know that I ever really see that anywhere else with him. Like I don't remember any other place where he talks about sort of forgetting, but just later on that we know that part of the reason that she looks so beautiful is because of all kinds of things that are super, super subtle. I don't know if it's actually hypnotic or whatever, but there's some kind of other thing going on, you know, just the right pheromones or whatever <laughs> that she's put. But also if he was, say he's at the party with Syriaca, he doesn't remember necessarily all the conversations that he passed by at the time. When he's right. paying attention oh, yeah. to the conversation yeah. with her. So anyway, to the fruit, he says, yeah, he'd like some. But Jolinta says she won't serve him. He'll have to get it himself. Aside from whether she's, you know, that sort of woman. I mean, she quit being a waitress three days ago. Mm -hmm. It's probably just too laborious for her to get up and down. Probably so. Yeah. The fruit is behind some stage armor that's made of cloth and painted silver. There's no reason to believe that it looks like a suit of medieval armor, though, but it must represent something with that same metallic nature. Severian gets a basket that has grapes, an apple, and a pomegranate. Okay, let's talk about the classical associations of these fruits. So, so the apple is associated with Aphrodite because she was awarded the golden apple by Paris in a contest against Hera and Athena. And incidentally, because of the roles she so often plays and, and because Zeus is always cheating on her, we frequently forget that according to some traditions, Hera was the most objectively beautiful of all female Olympians. It's probably more accurate to think of her as a 17 or 18 year old woman, but obviously, you know, a mean girl. Mm -hmm. Maybe Myla Kunis 
her role as Jackie in that 70s show. <laughs> but anyway, Paris preferred the bribe that Aphrodite offered over the bribe that Hera offered. Also, Aphrodite had access to the golden apples of the Garden of the Hesperides, but that apple tree in the Garden of the Hesperides with the golden apples, that's Hera's tree. Mm -hmm. So Zeus gave it to her as a gift. So the apple is associated very much with Hera, and we should remember that in a very real sense, these characters are often in a deep way, the way of true myth, the same actor or actors switching masks, mm -hmm. as Latrome notes in the soldier novels. And bringing this even further back to Wolf, in peace, he had the, um, well, we'll call him an antique bookseller. We had him claim that the famous Venus de Milo sculpture of Aphrodite without arms originally had her holding an apple. And of course, we know who else is associated with apples, Eve, of course. But Eve is also associated with pomegranates. And in some Talmudic texts, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil that Eve shared with Adam was a pomegranate. And the pomegranate is the fruit of Persephone. While Hades had kidnapped her, she ate pomegranate seeds, which prohibited her from returning from the underworld. But Hades and her mother, Demeter, cut a deal for dual custody that allowed her to live with her mom six months a year. And that's why we have winter, because Demeter is depressed half the year. Now, grapes, grapes are also associated with forbidden fruit in some Talmudic texts. Incidentally, not that it matters here, but wheat is also identified as the forbidden fruit because supposedly babies can't speak words until after they're old enough to eat grain foods. And later, early Renaissance associations are bananas and some mushroom. The mushroom I've certainly read about. <laughs> There's the whole lot of the, the weird Christmas mushroom stuff. There are guys who are fascinated with the idea that, yeah, the forbidden fruit was... Um, with some kind of hallucinogenic mushroom or that there's, there's one big theory that a lot of people have written on that Jesus himself, they're really, it's all just a mushroom that Christ was a mushroom or Santa is a mushroom. Yeah. Right. Santa is a mushroom. Yes. There's a whole other weird Christmas episode about that. If you're really interested, we can put a link in the show notes to that, but no, but yes, but the even bigger <laughs> idea that a couple of people have written whole books about is that actually there are a bunch of some Gnostic texts, but also just some weird ancient traditions that suggest that Christ himself, it's an all a metaphor to talk about mushrooms. It comes up against a few historical difficulties, but it hasn't stopped people from writing whole books about <laughs> it. But this isn't just a psychedelic association of the mushroom to forbidden fruit, because it, Apparently, it shows up in mm -hmm. some Renaissance painting at one point. There's a whole. There's a guy who's written an entire book about uh, mushroom and Christ imagery, <laughs> especially in uh, medieval texts and really like late ancient texts. Oh wow! Where you just see a lot of mushrooms and symbols with Christ, and but yeah, whether or not they're mushrooms, I mean, sometimes it could just be weird crosses. Sometimes it could be. <laughs> It could just be mushrooms because they like the shape. It could just be a design. Who knows? So, but there are actually a whole lot of images of right. Christ and early Christian figures with mushrooms. Yeah. Anyway, Jolenta asks for fruit and Severian gives her the grapes because he plans to give Dorcas the apple, you know, like Paris giving the apple to Aphrodite. He doesn't hand the grapes to Jolenta. He just puts them close to her hand. He takes the pomegranate for himself either dooming himself to 
the underworld or playing the role of Adam with a bit more agency. I don't know. <laughs> Jalinta held up her grapes to admire them. I remember three days ago, she was a skinny waitress living on tips with only the clothes that she wore to her name. And she says, crown under glass by some exultant gardener. It's too soon for natural ones. I don't think this strolling life is going to be too bad. And I get a third of the money. Uh, crown under grapes means it was grown under glass in a greenhouse. The crown of a plant is the base of the trunk where the roots go into the ground. So she's pretty happy with this change compared to her previous circumstances. And Severian had assumed that she'd been in Talos's and Baldander's acting troupe for a while, and he remarks on that. And this gives Jalenta a chance to consider how much she's changed in the last three days. And she says, you don't remember me, do you? I didn't think so. And we, the readers, are, are still supposed to put this together if we're going to at this early stage. And she eats a grape, and as far as Severian can tell, swallowed it whole. Jalenta explains that, no, last night was her first time as well. She had rehearsals only. Talos had to improvise the story to accommodate Dorcas. Severian didn't upset much at all. She says that he was supposed to be there. Dr. Talos played Severian's roles during rehearsal. Severian was surprised that Talos was depending on encountering them. And Talos pops up immediately, looking wide awake, which he almost certainly always had been. And he says, of course, of course, we told you where we'd be when we were at breakfast. And if you hadn't appeared last night, we would have presented great scenes from and waited for another day. So as we mentioned in chapter 16, Talos gives a series of explanations about his interest in Severian and why he created a role for him in the play, none of which are credible except to a madman. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, maybe Talos is mad. Maybe he's the comic relief in this story, and that's why he thinks the way he does. But I think Talos is operating with advanced knowledge. He knows where to set up the play because somehow someone told him where Severian would be walking. It's all part of some plan for Severian to join Talos and Baldanders. Maybe so Severian can join them and enter the house absolute. Maybe just so he'll be introduced to those guys. I, I don't know. But this is part of a manipulation by someone. I, I don't know who. Wink. <laughs> is it, why? It's hard to say. But this is definitely, I think, the first clear place you're supposed to be told that somebody somewhere is manipulating Severian. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that there are all kinds of hints about Inere and, and whatnot in other places, especially later on. But this is the first place in Shadow where there's really no other explanation for why Talos would say that. I mean, I guess you're supposed to possibly have the idea that he can see the future or he has some some knowledge of destiny or something but that doesn't that seems way too magical that instead somebody right. should know that he's he's here and he's coming and so that's yeah. kind of because Severian didn't show up that night right he right. was supposed to show up with that night right or at least according to talos but he just waited for him knowing that he would be there in fact when they were doing rehearsals apparently saying that Severian was going to be there that night yeah, that's crazy. Talos tells Jolenta that she's only going to get a quarter of the receipts now instead of a third because they have to share with Dorcas, which means that it was always intended that Talos and Baldanders would get a third of the receipts. 
Jalenta would get a third, and Severian would get a third. I've never been in theater production, but my sense is that this is very generous for a new actress, which means that this profit-sharing arrangement is a loss leader. Remember, the, the whole point is to pay to rebuild Baldender's house. The true payoff is not the local receipts, but whatever Talos has been promised when they get to the house absolute. Right? Yeah, that, that makes more sense. And whatever else they're learning along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that definitely seems to make more sense. It's another one of those moments where you're like, oh, I guess the money wasn't quite as important as it seemed like it was at first. Or there's some other place where yeah. they're going to get. Of course, we also know how easily they drop Jalenta off. Yeah, yeah. When they're done with her. Yeah, I mean, it could well be too that I mean, one thing I never really thought of before, although it makes obvious sense, is, well, have they been doing the play all throughout their travels this whole time? And if so, did they just pick up other girls and make them beautiful for a while and then drop them off when they got troublesome? Like, is that just a pattern that they've been doing? I mean, this certainly fits with how they treat people back in Lake Diaturna of just using them and discarding them. So maybe that's been going on and this is just something that they, they do all the time so that Jalenta is really just one of a series of people. Could be. Well, could be. Well, he says that they've been kind of doing a circus act for the last five years where Baldanders will do, you know, feats of strength, lift men and that kind of thing. So this producing of the play. I think it's new. Yeah. it's Maybe it's new. And maybe it's part of the, he needs Jalinta for the play. And the play is the thing. The whole purpose is to have the play with Severian. Apparently there are very specific roles that must be filled. I mean, that's, I'm just following my nose here. Yeah. If we're going with that idea of the big one is the one that they perform in the house. Absolute. That's also the one that high rules are at. They see things and, and get noticed. So who knows there, if we're talking about manipulation and things from the future, if it's all leading up to that point. Well, Jalinda doesn't care at all about the new sharing arrangement, which is a sure sign that they could have cut an even better deal with her. She's been transformed to be desirable. She eats every day. You know, she'd do this for free. Talos tells Severian to wake Dorcas up. They're going to divide the money and pack up to go. And Severian says that, you know, he and Dorcas aren't going with them. Talos is really surprised by this. Obviously, to me, he's been instructed that something else was going to happen. Severian says that he has to go back south to the center of the city. He has business with the Pellerines. He doesn't say so, but he plans to return the claw. And this would suggest that whoever had plans for him and Talos did not know that there was going to be a... Severian wasn't going to get the claw. They didn't know that. Talos says... You can remain with us until we reach the main road. It'll be your most expeditious route back. He doesn't ask Severian what business he has with the Pellerines. Severian believes Talos knows more than he's saying, and he supposes that that's why he didn't ask what he was doing with the Pellerines. But based on the way Severian puts it, he's guessing from some other reason. And I think it's probably not about the Claw or the Pellerines. And I think it's probably not the Claw or the Pellerines that Talos knows more about. So I think for me, I had always read Talos's apparent foreknowledge as that he was somehow not necessarily in league with Father Neri, but that Neri and the Hyruduals were somehow using 
Talos to get Severian on whatever path he's going through. Now, this is not for Severian theory stuff. This is just my sort of normal way that I think a lot of people may read it more. But or the question of Talos's foreknowledge of things, not only of like that Severian's going to be here, is also with the play, that the play seems to know a whole lot about the world. And I've always kind of assumed that they were connected somehow, that maybe Talos knew more about the Hyroduels than even Baldanders did at some point. And maybe that's because Inere was feeding him information in order to, to move Severian along in his path or something. But it's never clear. And I don't think Talos ever really gets clarified in anything like that. The only place where I've looked before of trying to figure out something about that is the scene uh, in Citadel where he shows up again and has the coin. And But it's hard to even that is so sort of opaque in certain ways of exactly what's going on there and what he's been doing and and what message he's trying to to give to Severian. Except that the fact that he has a coin and gives it to Severian, it goes all the way back to me to the very beginning saying, hey, everything that's happened here has been somehow manipulated. Right. Like to me, that's the clearest meaning of what that final scene could be when he gives him the coin, which is like, hey, here's another fake coin, just like that fake coin you got at the beginning. And also the the fact that it's a symbol of being fake is kind of like the things that you thought were true were not. But it doesn't exactly explain, okay, well, which things (laughs) like all of it or exactly how is it put together? In other words, all this is a long way of saying that I've always thought that whatever the conspiracy is behind the scenes that's going on, Talos Mm -hmm. has to be a part of it somehow. Whether or not he knows everything, the fact that he knows about the play seems like he ought to, to me at least, but he might not. He might just know certain things. But nonetheless, I don't think it's any kind of magic ability that he has or something. I think what it really all signifies is that he's part of whatever the machinations are behind the scenes that are working on Severian. Yeah, he's, he is a knowing player. Right. And Baldinger doesn't seem to know right. that he's up to this. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Even if Baldander's made him, it seems like he's something else. And I don't know if that's because of time weirdness. I mean, the fact that Talos is the one who brings up the idea of causation working backwards in time has always seemed to me pretty significant. Right. Um, and that means that he could be breaking out of the Baldander's idea. And of course, he does go separate from Baldander's at the end, right? He's still wandering around at the end. He's doing his own thing. You know, you just say that, and I just realized, when Severian has breakfast with Talos, he has this thought. At first, he sees him as a, as like a, a stuffed fox uh, whose head is, is on a wall or something mm-hmm. like that. And then he has this thought about ancient technology, ancient things, and all of this is associated somehow with Talos. And we had this conversation. And Talos knows about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It just occurred to me that you know, who knows how old he is, I, or at least his parts are, mm-hmm. and his knowledge. That's really something, yeah. Yeah. And if pieces of something can give you knowledge, then like that's one thing I never thought of before. But- has Talos gotten some Alzabo thing so that he's gotten memories? I mean, that would be a weird Frankenstein, right? Like if Frankenstein wasn't just made of pieces of someone, but actually right. also get all the memories and maybe the personalities of all the things you're made of. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a much more complicated Talos than I've thought of before. Also on Talos being used as a tool in the overall plan, he was constructed by Baldanders with guidance from the Herodules traveling from his future which implies that when they 
did that, they knew all about Severian and their meeting at Baldander's castle. I mean, could Talos be constructed as a ready sleeper device that they know can be used by time travelers from the past? That's pretty cool possibility. I don't know that we ever learned specifically that whatever technology Talos is came from the Hyrodules, but we do know that the Hyrodules have been coming to Baldanders for a long time. So it makes sense that it's not just the experiments or whatever that are going on in his castle, but could also be what led to Talos is something along there. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe in some ways they were making a little Ossipago type creature through Baldanders <laughs> and Talos to follow Severian around and take care of him or whatever. Like Ossipago is supposed to take care of the other two or something like that. It makes sense. I mean, that's, that's a really weird way to get a message to him when they are already physically coming to see him too at different times. Yeah. Well, the causality is kind of an odd thing when you, once you start doing that. On the other hand. But yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, because he does kind of, Talos does push him in a few different directions. Yeah. And it's certainly an odd companion otherwise. I, I, I like it. I like it. Well, Severian says, fine, I'll go with you to the road. But I assure you, we'll be splitting up then. And Talos didn't even wait to hear everything that Severian said. He just says, as you wish. And Severian's not sure if he's talking to himself or talking to Jolenta, who says she's going to go take a nap. And then he, he went to wake Baldanders, shaking him. And that's risky, I'm told. <laughs> and hitting him with the sword cane, Vodalus's sword cane. And Severian gently strokes Dorcas on the forehead and whispers that it's time to get up. Dorcas says, I wish you hadn't done that. I was having the most wonderful dream. Very detailed, very real. Sarian says that he did too. And Dorcas says, oh, wait, is that apple mine? All the breakfast you'll get, I'm afraid. And then she says, oh, that's all I need. Look at it. How round it is. How red. What is it they say? Red as the apples of... I can't think of it. Would you like a bike? <laughs> so uh, Michael Andre Druisi uh, suggests that what she's going to finish is the red as the apples of Eden. And that reference, would you like a bike, does kind of imply that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is an odd thing to me because Dorcas doesn't seem like the one who would be leading Severian down a bad path, mm. right? Yeah, I well. Mean, she's... Um, yeah, uh, it it seems like if anything, she's the one who could lead him towards really understanding what's going on. But maybe, I don't know, maybe if he's being manipulated for the good, then understanding what's going on is evil. I don't know. <laughs> but that's getting very complicated. around. Well, maybe. Well, it's the, let's see, it's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. It's not necessarily yeah. bad in itself. It was the context. Also, it precipitated them being driven out of Eden, which I don't know, it's Nessus Eden. Um, they're about to leave. I guess that's true. If you think about the context, nobody forbade them to eat the fruit here. So taking a bite of is good, but as a symbol, it's got to, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, Severian actually declines <laughs> the apple. So he's declining the role of mm -hmm. being the second Adam. And that, that's a Christ reference from the New Testament, yep. Craig. He, he says he's already eaten. He's had the pomegranate, like a good little Persephone. Dorcas says that she should have known from the stains on his mouth. She says he looks like a big black 
bat bending over her when he was waking her up with blood stains on his mouth. <laughs> so that's the only time in this whole book that has filled with like gothy things that I think we really get the idea that Severian might be a vampire. And it's not that I think anything is suggesting that he really is. But I mean, with the way that the whole first part is in graveyards and everybody's wearing black, like it's so gothy, you seem like it it ought to have some kind of vampires. <laughs> and that's the only time we get it that she mentions, oh, you look like you've been you know, drinking blood and you're you're hovering over me with your black cloak and all of that kind of thing. So it, it almost seems a little bit more like a joke to me. Like that seems like a wolf joke of saying, here's your vampire from your, in your goth story, but it's not real or serious at all. I mean, I, the only sort of blood drinking thing we get is more the Alzabo and the, the cannibalism, but that's less blood drinking and turning you into an undead creature. I mean, it's connected, I guess, to those kinds of things, but it's, yeah, it's a stretch to pull vampires into that. Okay. I think I have a model to explain Jalenta's grapes and Severian the vampire. These three are all aspects of the wives of Adam. I've read random references on the internet that Adam had a second wife between Lilith and Eve, who's unnamed, but I can't find a single primary source for that. But if there is such a source and Wolf knew about it, it could explain why Baldanders mm -hmm. doesn't recognize Dorcas. So Jalenta and Dorcas are Eve, you know, with the apple and, and the grapes, or, or maybe it's more complicated. Severian is Adam? No. He's Lilith. The legends of Lilith arose among Jewish writings from the regions of Iran, and that is also where the forbidden fruit was associated with pomegranates. So, Severian is Lilith, vampiric, baby-killing Lilith. But that's why Severian doesn't actually hand out the fruit to Dorcas and Jalenta, because he isn't Adam. So, where's the snake? Talos? He's not a bad choice if we imagine him handing out fruit, but he doesn't really do that, does he? No, I think Talos is another Eve association. He's got the money box and he opens it. He's Pandora, the first woman made by Hephaestus with instructions by Zeus. So Baldanders plays the role of Hephaestus here and the Herodules play the role of Zeus. Is Baldanders the snake? Well, he's a good choice because snakes are associated with immortality, which they attain by shedding their skin. But I don't think so. No, I think, if anything, he's Cain for a lot of innumerable and admittedly pretty weak reasons. But I should say that in some traditions, Cain is actually the child of Lilith and the actual tempter of the garden, the angel Samuel. Hmm. But anyway, Baldander's is forced to be a vagabond, a cast out. <laughs> oh, did you know that there's a Gnostic tradition that associates Cain with the sun? Okay, so first I'm curious about the Cain as the sun. I mean, is it, that would kind of make sense if the Demiurge is like an evil figure too, right? Then, then like the sun god, the creator god is also the, actually kind of the devil, the, the evil one who destroys the earth or destroys chaos to make to make the earth or something, but it would be a deceptive kind of creation. Hmm. Well, sure. the, there is a Gnostic group from the late second century, early third century called the Cainites, 
who, frankly, they're, they're kind of not very distinguishable from Satanists, but they, because they would they would want to do everything opposite. You need to break all of the laws, all of the codes, in order to to fight the demiurge who is you know Jehovah. So consequently, Cain is a hero, and Judas Iscariot is a hero, and you know. It just basically they anything anything that's white they turn black anything that's black they turn white. So I'm not sure there is a snake in this garden. Is there an Adam, the first man? No, I don't see anyone that might qualify. Oh look, there's someone coming toward our group. You mean Heather? Oh, 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 oh. okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, towards the end. Yeah, huh? Yeah, I mean that that fits. Certain things, yeah. That that means you have a very weird Genesis story going on. If that's if that's how to put it together, um, if you do that, you've got all kinds of other traditional things that are all turned upside down. I mean, the conciliator figure is a torture, and mass is all backwards and cannibalistic, and so you've gotten all sorts of other things turned up and mixed around. Hmm. What's the outcome then? Because I mean, getting kicked out of the garden is what happens and and sort of the big point of the Genesis story and original sin. What's the outcome of the story in this case? That's a good question. And I don't really know. It could be this, this chapter is kind of a little bottle episode all by itself anyway. So it could be that doesn't matter in in the bigger picture at all that, you know, okay, I've got them, these together. I'm going to have four representatives of the first woman and I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so, hmm. It's an interesting moment though. I mean, there is there is something about their little group in a circle and it's not exactly paradise, but it is kind of like a calm moment before they get back to conflict. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I like that though. It it's, it it opens up a lot of ideas. I'm not not quite sure what to do with all of it, but I parts of it are really compelling. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'd like it to, to mean more, but I don't see it in as anymore. But I do see all of these fruits that everyone's sitting around eating. Oh, look at that. They're uh, they're all forbidden fruits. And then, oh, here comes Talos. He's got a, he's got a box that he opens up. Oh, the first woman, Pandora. I'm going to let that one simmer because that I may come back to because there may be some things about that that'll work later, especially when we learn more about Jalenta later on, since she's the one who kind of offers them up to everybody. Huh. Okay, cool. Well, the Adam character and Eve character do show up in the play. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we agree to talk about Valeria. Valeria is a strange one. Yeah. This is the first time we've heard about her since chapter four. And he rightfully calls her the forgotten girl of the atrium. But he's going to keep mentioning her and weighing her. And I guess part of that might be because at this point, they're married, right? Mm-hmm. But... The explanation for why he's decided to marry her is not all that clear. Yeah. And I've never understood it. I've never, (laughs) never been able to go back and figure out what it was about Valeria that made him feel compelled to go back for her or that made him fall for her in all that time. I just don't know. Is there something that he might have finally understood about her from the memories he got from the Autark? That could be. Um, I also don't know if it's that we're supposed to think about something of his experience as he grows older and other things that he learns makes him appreciate something about Valeria more, but we're never really 
given much to say about her other than that she was a little mysterious and was kind to him. And but really, they just kind of had a quick little conversation and he was more concerned with his dog at the time. And and there's the, the period of time between when he first encountered her and then when he mm-hmm. comes back, that's less than a year and a half. Yeah, something like that. So far as we know, he never mentions or discusses learning more about her in the meantime. So, and as you pointed out before, certainly his descriptions of her as when he has little asides about her, as you go through the books, they grow a little bit more. Yeah, more detailed, more loving. Yeah, more enamored of her as time goes on. Mm -hmm. But we're never really told why. Now, maybe there is some, you know, timey-wimey reason for this. Like he realizes something about his destiny with her and how he's supposed to be with her or what she offers, but I don't even know what she represents or why as a as an autarch does he need her. So, one thing we can think about is why does he mention her at this point in the story? Like why bring her up here after the play when he is talking about Jalenta? I mean, maybe there's something in the contrast with Jalenta that Jalenta's the kind of woman who you immediately are attracted to, but over time you get less into or <laughs> as Severian gets a little more irritated with her over time. Maybe she's the opposite that when you first meet her she seems simple, but but she grows on you. I don't know. Or maybe there's something about her role in the play that she's supposed to be a character in the play. And that's sort of a key for the next time when we we actually do get the play. Well, he comes up, right, when he is looking at Jalinta walking away and he starts comparing her to other women that, that he's known. So let's repeat that. Jalinta's beauty was perfect. No other woman I have ever seen could approach it. Thecla's towering stateliness made her seem coarse and mannish in comparison. Dorcas's blonde delicacy as meager and childlike as Valeria, the forgotten girl I had encountered in the atrium. So this is almost a knock against Valeria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is her as an innocent small child, not as a beautiful love or, you know, wife. Yeah. I don't know. Curiositas Urthus. So I don't know. I mean, I, I found one thing just to throw in here again that I honestly hadn't remembered until we were thinking about this. And I don't know that this is like universally agreed that this is the way we should interpret this, but there is a passage in Earth, and Lee Berman gets credit for this. Because back on the Earth list, he points it out, and Severian mentions when you get the quote up again. So after Severian discovers he's an Eidolon, so this is very late in Earth, when he first recognizes what he is and kind of accepts it, one of the things he says is, I felt as real as I ever have. And when I searched among my memories, I found Valeria there still. And Thecla and the old Autark and the boy Severian, who had been Severian only. So when you first see it, it could be like, okay, and I found that I still had all my memories, like my memories of Valeria. But the rest of the quote is all talking about people whose memories he has. Let's see. We got the Autark. We've got Thecla. You got Thecla. And then he says, and the boy Severian, meaning, and he says, who had been Severian only. And he's meaning like, I still have my own memories of being back then. So I'm like an Eidolon and I still feel like myself, but I still had those memories of, you know, that person. But then he throws Valeria in that list. 
Could Valeria be a Autark then? Is that the idea? Now we know, right, that she definitely becomes an Autark because she, well, no, she's. But the timeline is wrong there. Could she have been. An earlier Autark. An Autark in in Severian's past memories. Right. In his past. In the, or is or in the or at least at least in the past of the old autark. Right, exactly. Yeah. Could she have been I mean, we've talked before about how he mentions that some of the old autarks were female. Could Valeria have been one of those people? Now, if that's the case, that might explain why he would go back for her. At that point in Citadel, when he goes back for her, he would have her memories, because he's He's got the old Autarch's memories at that point. He would know, presumably, who she was. Maybe there was some idea that he should just marry another Autarch. I don't know, but that's that passage I had totally forgotten, and I haven't seen people talk about it. It only came up again. So I don't know if that means that because of the grammar or because of just the way the statement goes, people aren't necessarily convinced that well i know what the problem is the problem is no one knows what to do with it right oh yeah but here we embrace all things (laughs) (laughs) so we don't have to do anything with it to to say this is something we can uh put right there on the shelf prop it means something probably we don't necessarily know exactly what it means or just because we don't have a model that can fit it doesn't mean that that we shouldn't be thinking in that direction and so the way one possibility berman says is that Maybe we're supposed to assume that the assassin's knife had Alzabo extract on it. And then when it stabbed Valeria, then somehow Severian got it. And now he, I don't know. I mean, that gets really wonky. (laughs) Honestly, it seems so much easier to say she was an autarch or would become an autarch as she grew older or something. Yeah. Uh, Right. I don't know. You know, or somehow that, yeah, it gets confusing. But anyway. Yeah, so many questions about Valeria. <laughs> Just so many questions. Valeria, Valeria, Valeria. But yeah, she does show up again. This is our this is where she does reappear in Shadow. There. Think about that, guys. <laughs> With those confusions, now we move on to <laughs> Let's move along. Bald Andrews is sitting up across the fire, rubbing his eyes with his hands like an unhappy child. Dorcas talks to Bald Andrews. She says Terrible to have to rise so early, isn't it, good man? Remember, she has no idea who any of these people are, and I guess she doesn't know or doesn't remember Baldander's name. She asks, were you dreaming too? He says, no dreams. I never dream. And at this, Talos looks at Severian and shakes his head woefully. (laughs) Severian thinks he's remarking on how unhealthy it is not to dream, but you know. Who knows? Maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, just with all the with all the dreams that Severian has, and who knows what. Yeah. I mean, I guess if Talos doesn't sleep, he doesn't dream. But yeah. Um, Dorcas says, "I'll give you some of my dreams." Then Severian says he has plenty of his own. Baldanders exhibits a bit of short term memory loss. He looks at Dorcas and says, "Who are you?" Dorcas looks at Severian. She's you know, really taken aback by this question. I'm, and pauses, and Severian finishes for Dorcas. Miss Chatty Dorcas doesn't take the hint at how pointless it is to engage with Baldanders. She <laughs> just continues the conversation. She says, yes, Dorcas, don't you remember? We met behind the curtain last night. You, your friend, introduced us, and he said I shouldn't be afraid of you because you would only pretend to hurt people in the show. 
I said I understood because Severian does terrible things, but he's really so kind. <laughs> yeah, kind Severian. That's what he's known for. Agia can tell you some stories about that. Dorcas reminds me of some people on the subway in New York City. There's only certain tourists and the insane who strike up conversations with strangers. <laughs> Dorcas seems to be wondering if she dreamed about her introduction to Baldander. She looks at Severian and says, you remember Severian, don't you? Remember, Dorcas is a little self-conscious about her memory anyway, because she can't remember stuff. And he says, of course, I don't think you have to be anxious about Baldander's because he's forgotten. He's big, I know, but his size is like my fulgent clothes. It makes him look much worse than he is. And frankly, Severian, you only had a half hour breakfast with Baldander's three days ago. What do you know about Baldander's? <laughs> <laughs> I shared a bed with her and possibly a dream. <laughs> well, yeah, that's pretty intimate. Also, his fulging cloak is a symbol of a lot of terrible things about him, of why people should fear him. You know, Severian's always looking for an opportunity to perform painful moves on people. Yeah. Severian is such a kind, kind heart. <laughs> but now, Baldanders and Dorcas are becoming great friends. You have a wonderful memory. I wish I could recall everything like that. So this is really cool because here we get someone deliberately contrasted with Severian in terms of memory, right? Like Baldanders specifically calls himself out as, I have a bad memory. I know it. I wish I could mm -hmm. do that. And knowing later that Baldanders is going to be his antagonist, it's pretty significant that Baldanders himself claims not to have a very good memory and that he's kind of slow on a lot of things like that. Like it seems like what he remembers are very specific things that are super important to him, but not necessarily anything that else is going on in the world. So I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that's sort of eventually what the memory thing is, is first of all here, it's just kind of a nice little ping to go like, Ooh, opposite of Severian. <laughs> but when, if you're kind of turning that into what does it actually mean later on, it does seem so much of what Severian remembers is not just himself, but all these things about other people. And that's also, I think, important to why his memory is so important for passing the test. And so for Baldanders not to have any memory mm -hmm. of things that really other people do or who they are or what was important to them, yeah. that's pretty significant. Severian records that Baldander's voice was like the rolling of heavy stones. That might be a reference to Sisyphus. Probably not, though. Mm. I like that, though. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. Talos interrupts the conversation by shaking the money box to get everybody's attention. Come, friends, I have promised you a fair and equitable distribution of the proceeds of our performance. And when that is complete, it'll be time to be moving. Turn around, Baldanders, and spread your hands in your lap. Seer Severian, ladies, will you gather around me as well? Talos, Mr. Fair Dealing, just like Mephistopheles. <laughs> he doles out the money, and after he tells them that there are also a lot of coins that are probably counterfeit as well, and he'll divide those equally as well, since they have a certain amount of value because they can be passed, perhaps, as real money. Severian figured that in dividing the shares into four parts, Severian, Dorcas, Jalenta, Talos, was not including Baldanders because, you know, he's Talos's slave. But now he sees that Talos is giving Baldanders a share and taking nothing for himself. Jalenta asks if Talos already took his share, and if he did, he should have done it in the presence of everyone else. But Talos says, I take no share in this. 
Well, now Dorcas is really bothered by that. She whispers to Severian, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> and Severian confirms, it isn't fair, Doctor. You took as large a part in the show last night as any of us and collected the money. And from what I have seen, you provide the stage and the scenery as well. If anything, you should have a double share. See? Even Severian understands the theater business enough to know that this whole profit-sharing relationship is dubious. But Talos says, slowly, I take nothing. It is my pleasure to direct what I may now call the company. <laughs> I wrote the play we perform, and like um, that armor there, I play my part. These things are my pleasure, and all the reward I require. Ah, Talos, the soul of an artist. Just wait until he's showing Severian around Baldender's house of horrors, though. <laughs> and I do like that he says that he's going to dole out the fake coins last. And of course, those are, I wonder if that's the same coin that he gives him. Yeah, I wonder. Well, he must hold on to those though. Yeah. But, you know, Talos isn't taking any money because he is an artifice. He's a thing. He's a thing of Baldenders. He knows it's not his job. And he was actually, he says, designed not to love money. And it's also, of course, one of the clues that we get that it's Baldenders who is really in charge and not Talos because that's their share. Right. True. At the end of the divvying, there are only two Orichoks left. Whoever wants can take both by giving up his claim to the Ias, the smaller denomination, and to the counterfeit coins. Dorcas takes that deal, which surprises Severian. Talos says, very good. I will not presume to judge the quality of the rest of the money and just hand it out. Be careful when you use it. You can get in trouble with the law that way. Of course, once you get outside the wall... Hey, what's this? And here comes a man in shabby gray walking up to them. And I'm not going to leave you in suspense. The next chapter is called Haythor. So I don't know if there's any deep significance to Dorcas taking the two, uh, the two coins, except that she decides to go for that and not risk anything fake. Just the fact that she likes the certainty of knowing something. I don't know if. Oh, yeah. She doesn't want the fake. I think you're right. Yeah. That, yeah. She doesn't want to risk the fake. Yeah. It's her purity. Yeah. Her, yeah. yeah. She's innocent. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's the, I think that's the insight into her personality. But yeah. And then. Yeah. The shabby gray man. And I just, it's a small thing. I love the word advancing towards us just because it, it's not that he could be shambling. <laughs> he could be limping he could be but he's just like getting closer it's just it makes him seem otherworldly to me i don't know i just right. i love that word yeah oh Hathor. it's always fun when hathor arrives oh yeah yeah and i love more hether prose <laughs> my favorite stuff in the book no it really is it's like when hether talks it's some of my favorite parts of the book yeah not a whole lot here we do finally get some stuff about jolenta it Really, if anything, it seems like it's more scene setting for a lot of stuff that happens later. Right. Here. An odd anticlimactic chapter to have right before what's supposed to be, I, you would think, a big cliffhanger, right? Like, I mean, that's part of the reason why I think this book, it ends so strangely to people because we're not even really building up to anything. Right. It's just like the morning after a strange thing that happened and they're just kind of talking about their day. It's such an odd rhythm to end a book on because, um, of course, you know, you're getting to the end of the book. Well, we get to know the players, right, of this yeah. company. That's the whole, I guess, yep. that's the whole point. 
We'd, yeah. I, I really could use some a chance to get to know Haythor, but we never really, yeah. really do. But no, I'm just thinking about like when people first read it, when it was a single, you know, single paperback, what they were thinking as they were getting to the end about how strange this book is that here we are, we've got this torturer who's set off on his own, but is the plot really going anywhere now at this point, like this strange play has come up. <laughs> We're certainly not in one more chapter going to get a resolution to the claw thing. We're not going to get a resolution to him getting to the town or anything. And it's sort of you're wondering, well, what's going to happen at the end of the book? And so it ends on a cliffhanger, but it's also just a, a weird cliffhanger because it doesn't really necessarily mean anything in the context of all the other stuff that he's drawn up. So just thinking about how Shadow is organized. I mean, yeah, we're getting to a gate, but yeah. it, apart from the idea of getting out into the wider world, there's not a whole lot of like plot meaning to it. It's just that, yes, and now he will continue his journey. So, But Wolf also does it with just enough other weirdness going around that you just want to know more. Like, well, wait, <laughs> like what is going on with all this other stuff? So it's still, it's really well done. Yeah, the chapter does not drag at all. Talos's conversation is interesting. Even the passing out the money is interesting. Yeah. But it's just a very odd way to write a book. No, I like it. I but that's, of course, that's why it's so fascinating to people. So why this stuff here? Right. So we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. Uh, you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. And if you're looking for a suggestion of what to ask about, Exactly how much money did they make? See if you can <laughs> use your sleuthing skills to figure out the exact amount of money that was dropped. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you can detect it from the text. You can detect everything from the text. Of course, Wolf is such a master writer. <laughs> he would have thought of that and put ways in there for us to figure it out. You can also leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and tell your Wolf reading friends. And... Until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. And the sun went down in that world of light. And the sun went down in that world of light. And the sun went down in that world of Okay, hold on. Are we, are we running? No, no, I'm here. I'm trying to understand what I wrote down. Shall we just dive on in and get one step closer to finishing this thing? Severian <laughs> so says that Jalinta's... What is wrong with me? <laughs> I had a thought. Hang on. Pomegranate. Yeah. There must... I should have looked. Is there an Earth list theory? That Severian is a vampire? I don't know. I can do a real quick search. <laughs> Let's see. Let us see.
Here, I'll search Reddit. You're gonna you look that up. I'll see you. Reddit. Okay. Dorcas is a vampire. Yeah, she is undead. There's, I mean, there's a theory. But Dorcas is a vampire. I don't think uh, this was be. Oh, this was uh, Lee Berman. Someone says that Severian is something of an energy vampire. Oh, that was Michael. Energy man. That's getting to uh, the the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's what we do in the shadows. <laughs> I like the emotional vampires. <laughs> that was such a great fight. No, no, there. I, that's there's got to be something there, but I have no idea. It's not my Earth list. If they don't theorize, it's a very <laughs> vampire at some place. Yeah, somebody did count Dorcas. All right, that's good. Cool.